You look weary. Come closer. <laughs> I am the teller. Tales of wonder. Tales of light. And dark. There are all manner of stories here. So come. Sit by the fire. Let me tell you a story. Hello, and welcome to the fire. In this episode's tale, we return to the town of Saltwind, Utah, for the conclusion of In a Man's Pocket. On the run and set upon on all sides by gun-toting maniacs, Sheriff Bill Cutty faces a battle unlike he has ever known. Can he save the life of innocent John Magna and his wife, Laura? Or are the scales of justice tipped too far in the opposite direction? May I present, In a Man's Pocket, Part 3. Eighteen eighty, the great state of Utah, from the desk of Sheriff William Cutty. My dearest Sicily, I've lost count of the innumerable amount of words I've put to innumerable amounts of paper to you over the years. If they were to be collected all together, laid down on a line, I'm sure they would reach right across the nation, from east to west. And yet despite my best intentions, Every word I write in the vain hope one or more may bring you closer. They only seem to push you further from me. I struggle to find any more amongst the very short list I know that might still serve me in my quest to bring you here, or to persuade your heart to forgive me. It has been twelve long years since I laid eyes on you, and I'm ashamed to say I'm beginning to forget what you looked like. Gentle bones that make up your slight and sharp facial features. Gentle slope of your neck. The soft brown hair that surrounds it. The only things that still remain in my mind's eye. That and your eyes. Blue. Blue as if the sky entire fled downwards towards the earth. For the heavens themselves were not worthy to contain such a blue. And yet when I think of those eyes... I do not see them alive with the love we shared over the years. Only the disappointment, sadness, and rage that lit them like a great fire across the threshold of our New York home when I departed all those years ago. No doubt those eyes have scarcely scanned even a single one of the letters I have written in the intervening years since. But if for some reason, the weft of time since the day of our separation has cooled your hatred for me, and you find yourself with this letter in your hand, your eyes reading the lines contained within. And please, take these final two lines as my desperate plea to you. I love you. And what I chose to do that day, that forever turned your heart against me, has haunted me ever since. If it's to be that I shall never be forgiven by you in this life, I can only hope the Lord himself does so in the next. Perhaps there, even you too, may look upon me again with, if not love, then favour of the smallest kind. With love, unchanging and everlasting. 
your husband, William Cuddy. 1888, present day. Sheriff Bill Cuddy crouched low. Beside him, John Magna crouched much the same, rocking back and forth on uneasy, tired legs. They shared a look for a moment, words unneeded to communicate their shared message to one another. Don't make a sound. The pair, clutched in the grasp of a large and dry bush, surrounded by a small collection of trees, looked out across the plain. In the distance, burning against the clear night sky, a collection of torches and lanterns. Another search party, and by the sounds of their echoed, raucous and drink-fueled bellowing, not any party of lawmen. No, these were hired hands, men with guns and bloodthirst aplenty. Their minds and hearts fixed on promised pay from Quincy Gray. The body of John Magna, in whatever condition they are prepared to present him, with or without breath, was of no concern to Quincy. It had been two weeks since his son Richie had fallen from his horse, throat severed and spewing blood from a bullet sent by Magna's wife Laura, who had also disappeared in the maelstrom of bullets that erupted afterwards. Since that time, Sheriff Bill Cutty and John Magna had spent every waking hour chased across the county, across plains, up hills, over rivers, through sun-baked fields and cloud-covered tree lines. Every time a suitable distance had been put between them and their pursuers, and the pair had finally allowed themselves time to rest, eat and drink, torches and shouts echoed across the landscape, once again driving them up from the ground, and on the alert. Bill was tired, his legs beneath him shaking from the effort of crouching for an extended period of time. He was old and out of shape. The most level of exertion expelled from his body of the past few years amounted to his nightly walks around the hunting lodge he resided in. Two weeks of constant running, riding and hiding, with only a few fleeting hours of disturbed and anxiety-flecked sleep, had begun to take their toll. Bill looked at John Magna next to him, who despite being at least twenty years his junior, had begun to show signs of the same exhaustion Bill himself felt. His eyes were red and bloodshot, his black hair matted and knotted with mud and dust from the road. Even his strong arm wavered and shook slightly as it clutched his worn revolver. Bill turned back to the plane and watched the party inch slowly across it. It would take them some time to slip over the hills they were heading for but they would remain still until such time passed, which they did, despite their shaking and weary limbs. After an hour of anxious short breaths and fingers scratching against gun metal, the last torch disappeared over the hill, the plane became silent once more. In unison, both Bill and John uncocked their pistols and revolvers and stowed them in their holsters. They sank to the ground. Bill looked over at Lucia, her legs also shaking. They had ridden the poor girl hard over the past fortnight, barely time to stop at a lake for her, or even a stream, and her saddlebags were almost empty of food. Even the two men had scarcely eaten since their escape. Bill pushed himself up from the ground with considerable effort and made his way to Lucia. Opening her saddlebag, he retrieved two dry-looking apples. Lucia, smelling them, thrust her head towards Bill. Hey, he said to John, who remained laying on the ground. He opened his eyes in time for Bill to throw him one of the apples and he caught it, nodding a wordless thanks. Bill pulled a knife from his belt and cut his apple in half, and feeding one half to Lucia, who took it gratefully, he returned to the ground and ate his. 
Party's getting bigger, it would seem, John said through mouthfuls of apple. Bill nodded. So it would seem. I imagine every town they pass through, they pick up a few more souls full of liquor, pockets empty from the same. Ain't hard to get men to part with morals for a few coins. You ain't wrong. The men returned to silence, eating their apples. Above them, pinpricks of languid moonlight broke through the gaps between the trees, illuminating their shelter. They no longer lit fires at night. They had made that mistake a week ago and shed no small amount of sweat and bullets escaping the horde of men that were drawn to it like moths. When he was finished eating, Bill pulled out his tobacco pouch and scooped the last few scraps remaining into papers for them both. Rolling them quick and tight, he struck a match low to the ground out of caution and fear of sight, and then handed one to John, who took it wordlessly once more. The two men smoked quietly, their hands cupping around their cigarettes to hide the small hints of red-burning light at the end. John finished his cigarette and stubbed it out on the ground beside him, mindful to move the collection of dead leaves that surrounded him. He looked at Bill, who sat back to a tree, his eyes closed and cigarette dangling from the corner of his mouth. John shook his head and chuckled a little. Something humorous taking your fancy there, John? Not so much a fancy there, Bill. Hell, looking at you there, smoking against a tree in the dark of the night, while we hide from a gang of murderous thugs. Well, it's bringing back memories of the fellas I used to run with. They could see me now. Engaged in much the same activity, but with a lawman as my compatriot. My God, would they be laughing? Bill said nothing, instead choosing to suck on his cigarette, eyes closed. John watched him for a moment before standing up. Bill, I feel we may need to discuss what in the hell we're doing out here. Bill finally opened his eyes and looked up at John and stood before him. How do you mean, John? How do I mean? What else could I mean? What are we doing out here, Bill? What are you doing out here? You heard that snake, Mr. Gray. The man damn near set up a perfect web of lies in which to catch me. Everybody in that town heard him, understood him, and ate him down with no caution, care, or question. Bill nodded, finally extinguishing his cigarette. Well, ain't objecting to anything you said. Damn near all of it's true. But we can prove them false. We just gotta get you to a lawyer. Somewhere safe. Start the legal proceedings in the proper manner. John laughed. Start the legal proceedings? In a proper manner? You out of your mind, old man? We're out here in the goddamn wilderness. Haven't been going on two weeks now. Running across the goddamn land like animals. The dogs at our backs. How you expecting us to start legal proceedings... We can't even start a goddamn fire without fear of bushwhacking. Bill pushed himself upwards, but his legs failed him. He fell back down to the ground. See? Look at yourself, man. Can't even stand without falling on your ass. And I ain't doing much better. We're a right pair of sorry fools. John turned away from Bill. Should have just taken Laura. I'll tear it out of there before I had the chance. Now she's... God knows where and God knows what condition... John, she'll be fine, I told you. Irma Brown took her in. You know she'll take care of her and say nothing to nobody about it. And what? That's it? Leave my wife in the care of some old woman? Caring or not? We were supposed to have a life together. Look at me out here, 
in the dirt, sharing an apple with an old man and a horse. Quite the fucking life. Bill pushed himself upwards, hard, managing to stay upright. John, we can make this right. There's always something we can do. John turned to face Bill. You really are a sorry old fool. I should have stayed in town. Hell was I thinking getting on that horse with you. Probably just trying to save your skin. Bill and John turned to the new voice that had appeared from outside the tree line. Easy, fellers. It's Benny. That you in there, Sheriff? Bill sighed. Yeah, Benny, it's us. How'd you find us? Through the trees, Benny could not be seen, but still heard clear enough. I've rode with you years now, Sheriff. I know old Lucia's tracks here as well as my own. Been on you since you left. Only now I felt it right to approach. Too many passes out here up until now. Come on out. John looked at Bill, his hand wavering over his revolver. It's all right. He's a good man. Let's go. Bill strode out through the bushes and the trees, pushing aside branches and leaves until he saw Benny, up on his horse, rifle aimed at the pair. Bill stopped in his tracks, John behind him mirroring the same position. Benny, what in the hell are you doing? Benny's face was pulled tight, his jaw clenched with determination, his eyes betraying that with the presence of some half-formed tears. Why'd you run, Sheriff? Sheriff ain't supposed to run. Not least with a man accused. That's just it, Benny. John here is a man accused. Accused is not condemned and I ain't trying to make it that way. Benny's rifle shook in his hand. But Sheriff, his wife shot Richie Gray in front of the whole town. They done found Samuel on their land. Bill stepped forward. Benny don't be a goddamn fool. We saw Samuel that night, didn't we? John here was already in the wind, and Mrs. Magner was in the house with you for the remainder, and I was with John. When in that course of events can you find yourself believing that either one of them did Samuel that way? Benny's brow furrowed and his blinking eyes fluttered nervously. He looked to John. Mr. Magner, Mr. Gray, well, he said that he knows your wife's over at the Brown place. Hold up in the bed with a gunshot wound. John stepped forward now. She all right? Open your mouth and tell me, boy. She's healing well by all accounts. She can stay that way, so says Mr. Gray, even though she done kill his boy. Mr. Gray said he'll abide it, even if he don't like it. But you, you got her atone for her sin and yours. He'll leave her be. He just wants you. You can come with me willingly, or, or well, I can take you slung over this horse. Bill took a step forward. Deputy, you will. I ain't deputy no more, Sheriff. I mean, Bill. A lot of changes in two weeks. They done made me Sheriff on account of your fleeing with Mr. Magner here. I didn't... I didn't want it. But you know they would have made one of their own the position if I didn't take it up. You know that, Sheriff. Bill? John spat at the ground. By the sounds of it, boy, they did make one of their own, Sheriff. Benny looked away from the pair, a moment of shame too great and too present on his face to show to his old friend. I gotta take you in, Mr. Magner. Bill, you gotta let me. 
They want me to bring you in too, but considering all you've done for me, I'll let you walk on out of here. Get on, Lucia, and just go. Bill looked at his deputy and then at John behind him. You know, you know I can't do that, Benny. Bill's hand went for his gun, his fingers wrapping around the handle and slipping into the trigger. He raised it, and then John's hand forced it to the ground. The hell you doing? You gonna shoot your boy here? You gonna shoot your boy for me? Are you crazy? Bill looked at John and up at Benny. Benny's rifle never even rose up from its position. He looked at Bill, the tears held at bay now, running down his cheeks. Ah, ah, cut your talking now, Sheriff. Or Bill, I should say, John said, letting go of Bill's arm. He walked towards Benny and looked up at him. Benny, right? That, that's right, Mr. Magner. You gonna let my wife be if I come in? Truly? No rules, no tricks? Benny wiped his face. No evidence of there being none, Mr. Magner. But speaking honest, it wouldn't be shocking for it to be. John nodded. I'll come in, but not with you. I'll go to the Gray's place on my own two feet. In return, you gotta get my wife out of here. I, I ain't supposed to. You want bloodshed? Huh? Cause that's what you'll get. Bill here says you're a good man. Prove it. Ride back now. Get my wife and take her to the first station you find. I'll pass through town on my way to the Grays. If Miss Brown gives me the nod you tell her to, to confirm you acted on our agreed terms, I'll go right on up to the Grays, unarmed and willing. Benny nodded and finally stowed his rifle into the saddle. All right, Mr. Magner. That, well, them terms right there don't betray the deal Mr. Gray's offering. I'll, I'll do it. It'll take me some hours to get back and get your wife to a station. But what if she don't come with me? She's, well, strong-willed. John laughed. That she is. You tell her. You tell her I said it's that way. Always was. She'll know. An anything else? John walked away from Benny. She knows everything else. Why I married her. John walked past a silent Bill and back into the trees. For a moment, Bill and his deputy looked at one another. Think about what I said, Bill. You know it's for the best. And I'm sorry. Don't beat yourself up about that gun pull he stopped you on. I know... I know you was only doing what you think is right. Thing is, what we think ain't always what it is. Benny pulled on the reins and kicked off across the plain before Bill could respond. Bill watched him leave, his hands shaking. When Benny and his horse finally disappeared into the night, Bill slowly walked back across through the trees. John sat on the ground. Bill stood still. You gonna take the life of a man? Who served you throughout the past however many years for me? For what? You, you can't go. John looked up at Bill. I can't what? You can't go. John laughed heartily. Oh, can I? Can I? What the hell do you know? That's my wife's life they're playing with over there. Like you were a 
goddamn cock in a fight? Think I'm gonna run around the wilderness with you for the rest of my life? Send my wife to the gallows in my stead? Because of what? Because it ain't right? Nothing's right, Bill. You know that. You'd understand that if you had a wife, anyone even, that you cared about enough. Bill remained silent, staring off into a space above John's head. I got a wife. Well, I did. No doubt she wouldn't say so herself. Or has done for nigh on twenty years. John paused. People say you live alone. I do live alone. My wife, as much as she is that, is up in New York. In our old house. Once we lived in before the war and for a short time after. See, I served. You know that. Hell, everybody does. Had my own rifle squad operating out of Washington during the war. Hell, me and those boys were in just about every scrape, skirmish, and battle that happened over those years. Or at least felt like we was anyway. Towards the end, most men had done and seen more than they could handle. Last fight we was in wasn't no great battle. Nothing you'd read about in any of the news reports or any of those cheap dime novels they've been writing since. We was down in southern Pennsylvania. Some Confederate boys were high-tailing it out of there and I was in charge of my unit two others. Damn near run those boys ragged chasing them southern boys through the woods. Gotta be so damn bloody, so darn long. Ten of the boys from one of those two units got in their heads. This thing was damn near over. It was high time they got some respite. Instead of waiting, instead of fulfilling their duty, turned on their heels, ran back north. We lost 50 good men because of their insolence, flanked as we were from the opening left by their absence. We cleaned up, pushed the boys back, and a few months later, War was over. I got back to New York, where it came down that they rounded up those deserters. And as the officer in charge at the time, it was my duty to oversee and hand out the punishment. Execution? John said. Firing squad. In a base, just outside New York City. Not 30 minutes from where I live with my wife. So, following my orders... Following what was right, I headed on down there. Come to see those ten boys that fled, only six of them by then. Goddamn first time I'd ever laid eyes on them proper. Most of the time I kept the sergeants riding on them. I didn't need to see who it was, I just needed to know they was there. And as they was lining them up, one by one, spot a face I know to be familiar. My wife's kid brother. Boy named James called him Jimmy. I knew he was fighting throughout the war, but never could remember the unit. He was one of them. He must have been folded into that unit at the time. Never seemed to realize we was mere mile away from each other for three all months. Anyways, I saw him there, in that line. He saw me. We done looked right at each other boy I'd shared a dinner table with, slept under the same roof with, felt the love of the same woman, 
albeit in different forms. And he was seconds away from being shot. I could have saved him. My record, my reputation. Yeah, I could have saved more than just him if I could formulate and organize a right enough sounding sentence to the relevant audience. But I didn't. Not because there weren't time. Or I didn't know until I saw his body afterwards. I let it happen. More than that, I gave the order. Because I thought it was right. Boy left us. Boy abandoned his fellow man so he could get the jump on some pussy and some liquor back home. He felt he had done his part at the time. That done shook me to my core. It weren't no choosing what was right, what was wrong. Right and wrong's right and wrong, ain't it? No room for nothing else. We all know that, don't we? We're all supposed to know that, right? Anyways, I went home that night and I said nothing to my wife. A few days later, a mother received a letter informing her of their son and brother's fate. Said what he had done, what punishment he had received, and where it had been handed out. Thirty minutes from our house. When my wife came to me, tears in her eyes, begging me to tell her, I didn't know. I didn't know her brother was there. I arrived late, couldn't save him. In a moment of weakness, I told her what she wanted to hear. She didn't believe me. Never said so with words. But the house damn near grew colder every day ever since he died. By the time I was assigned to Saltwind, I hadn't heard her voice or seen her smile in months. You know, I wrote her every week for 12 years. Finally stopped after. I was punishing us both with my endless words. She would never arrive. I thought this town would be penance. I could work and tend to the people here. Because even though I hated myself for watching that boy die and my wife's love for me along with him, I still thought it was right. That never changed. Justice is justice, ain't it? Ain't it? It ain't meant to be kind. It don't care about a man's faults or feelings. Scales are weighted the way they are. Sometimes that weight crashes down on a man, and rightly so, even if it feel wrong to the man who's dropping them. But then out here, that family... The Greys? Shit. Found myself up at night just thinking, what happened? What happened to men? Used to be men treated and respected other men based on what was in their character and in their hearts. Now it's all about what's in a man's pocket. Long string of men, the hands in another and in another and in another. Once you get to the end of the line and there ain't nothing left to take, you take his respect, his land, his soul, his life. I hear him jingling a coin stuffed in a man's trousers like a goddamn siren call and a warning bell. And I can't do nothing. I can't.
can't do nothing. And I didn't do nothing. Bill sat down. John sat watching the old man for a moment. You're a goddamn fool, you know that? Used to be. Used to be a man was judged on his character. What a pretty little world you've been dreaming of, Sheriff. Maybe where you came from, you learnt and believed that to be true. <laughs> but everywhere else? Shit. Always been that way. Always will be. Best you can hope for is a quiet life. The people you love. And if not a life, well, good few moments at best. And I got some with my Laura. Not as much as I would have liked, or maybe even deserved. But enough. Enough. So I'm going to sleep now. I'm going to sleep, and in the morning I'm going to take your horse. Ride to town. I'm going to see my wife safe. And then I'm going to go to the Greys. Ain't no use running no more. Hell, I spent my life running. You're a good man, Sheriff. You got some demons haunting you, I can see that. Wish I could tell you something to quiet them for you. Maybe there's some on the other side of this world. If I get there, I'll let you know. John Magna turned over and laid down. Bill sat watching him and said nothing. Slowly he pulled out his tobacco pouch before seeing it was empty. He tossed it aside and waited. Waited for morning to come. As the sun rose in the early morning sky, the town of Saltwind remained sleepy and quiet. Benson's saloon remained empty, bar from Reverend Marcus O'Reilly, asleep next to two half-empty bottles of whiskey on the porch. A pair of hands grabbed the bottles, not disturbing the sleeping O'Reilly. Slowly, Lucia made her way through the thoroughfare. She stopped outside the general store. From the top window, Irma Brown appeared, peering through the curtains. Seeing the rider atop Lucia, she nodded to him. The horse carried on. After a quiet and undisturbed journey, Lucia began trotting up the long path to the grey house. Tobacco fields looked largely safe from the fire of two weeks ago. Only a small patch near the Magnus property line had succumbed to the flames, a mere slither of the total amount. Some field hands worked in the steadily rising morning sun, few pausing to watch the horse and its rider slowly making its way up the path. At the grey house, the huge grey slab of a, of a building... Some guards were jolted awake by the sound of horse hooves. A few rushed into the house while others cocked and loaded guns. As Lucia reached the end of the path, the rider pulled on her reins and jumped off. Slapping her hindquarters, he shooed her away and she rode off back down the path. The doors to the grey house opened and Quincy Grey appeared with tired eyes but a sneering grin. Beside him, his remaining son Oliver. Flanked on both sides of the pair, a semicircle of some twenty men, all armed. Quincy strode forward out of the house, his horde following him, until he stopped some fifty metres away from where the figure stood at the edge of the tobacco field. His hat pulled down low, the figure held up his hands in a surrender. In the fields, the hands and workers all stopped and watched. Mr. Magner! Tough man to find, and yet here you arrive all alone. 
No more sheriffs to look out for, you know? <laughs> well, you know what they say about the hand of the law. It's always short when you need it, long when you don't. You're here to receive your punishment, I presume. The figure nodded. Quincy Gray clapped his hands together. Well, in an effort to retain some level of courtesy and justice, allow me to read the charges before all of these witnesses before we hand down sentence. Mr. John Magna, you stand accused of the destruction of my property and the murder of Samuel Johnston and the two hired guns, Pa, Oliver said, unsmiling in his father's ear. Ah, yes, and the murder of two of my hot hands out on the road out of Saltwind. Do you accept these charges and the punishments therein? Quincy raised his hand slightly, signaling his men, who all raised their guns. I do. Bill Cutty removed his hat and opened his coat, pulling out the two whiskey bottles and lighting them quickly. I'm here to finish the job. Bill launched the two bottles either side of him, both of them exploding on his back of fields, instantly setting the field ablaze. Field hands scattered and fled as Bill strode forward, his hands drawing his pistol and John Magna's worn revolver. He fired multiple shots towards the crowd of armed men, all too shocked by the sudden burst of flame and gunfire. Quincy Gray cried out in alarm, shrinking backwards. Bill kept firing as he rushed towards a wagon to his left, ducking behind as the armed mob finally began returning fire. Sheriff, what the hell are you doing here? Quincy shouted over the gunfire. No sheriff affixed in front of my name no more, Mr. Gray. You saw to that. I'm here to finish the job I started two weeks ago. Reloaded, Bill popped up from behind the wagon and fired both guns. The poorly trained hired guns fell quickly, bullets ripping through the flesh as easy as a knife with butter. Some ran, dropping their guns and screaming while the fire spread through the tobacco fields like a wave. A bullet glanced off the wagon, striking Bill in the shoulder, who dropped down, wincing in pain. Kill him, Oliver! Kill him! Quincy shouted, slapping his silent and dumbfounded son next to him. Bill rose again and shot twice, striking two men next to Quincy. Bill turned and aimed his guns at Quincy and fired. Quincy pushed Oliver right into the path of the oncoming bullets. They struck Oliver, one in the chest, the other in the stomach. He dropped to the ground, dropping his shotgun. Pa! No! He said quietly, hands scrabbling at his father. Quincy kicked at his son's hands as he scurried backwards. Bill stepped out from behind the wagon, wincing at his shoulders as he did. Quincy crawled backwards away from the oncoming Bill, his men all either dead, wounded, or fleed. What are you doing? You can't do this. I'm Quincy goddamn Gray, you animal. I made this town. I am this town. Bill stopped as he reloaded John's revolver. And a piss poor job you did of it, Mr. Gray. Stop right there, Bill! Bill looked over his shoulder. Benny stood in the middle of the path, rifle raised, the fire of the tobacco fields whirling around him like the gates of hell itself. Can't let you do it, Bill. Bill looked at Benny's chest, pinned to his coat's lapel, the sheriff's star he had kept in the station desk drawer for the past ten years. Tin looks good on you, Benny. Indeed it does. Benny allowed a small smile before straightening himself. Wasn't supposed to be like this, Bill. 
Bill sighed. <sighs> Ain't that the truth, Benny? Ain't that the truth? But it was me who set fire to the Gray's place, then and now. Damn sick of their dealings in this county the past twenty years. You can attest to that, can't you, Benny? Benny nodded, strange look on his face. Bill turned to the collection of field hands that watched from behind sheds and barrels and in the doorway of the Grey House. And all of you, you done heard my confession? John Magner and his wife had nothing to do with it. Y'all hear me? Oh, I hear you, Mr. Cuddy, Quincy Gray said from the ground. Bill looked down to see Quincy holding his son's dropped shotgun. He fired, the shot flinging Bill backwards. He landed rough and hard some meters from Benny. Bill! He shouted, rushing to his side. The shot had been slightly wide, Bill's right side torn open, ribs poking out, torn and lacerated flesh spewing a torrent of blood. Benny pulled Bill's head and shoulders up, cradling him. Bill, oh Christ, Bill, what the hell you done, huh? Bill coughed and spluttered as he gripped Benny's hand tight. You, you get Mrs. Magner on the train, Benny? Benny nodded, face wet with tears, his hands soaked with Bill's flowing blood. Where, where's John, Bill? Bill smiled as he coughed. He's where you found us, Benny. Mighty sore, I, I took his gun, tied him up. He make you make sure he gets back safe. All right. You send him where you sent Mrs. Magner. Make sure he gets there. Lead, lead him by the hand if you have to. Benny nodded. I will, Bill. I, I promise. Bill coughed and spluttered, blood mingling with his spit. You do better than I did, will you, Benny? Take my house. Put Kathy in there. Fill it with children. You hear? That place is... That place is overdue some love. Make sure people know it was me. Not them. I did it all, you hear? Benny looked around to the remaining farmhands as they all came closer, listening intently, still slightly skittish with fear. I think you did that mighty well enough yourself, Bill. Bill laughed. At least I did something right, I guess. Only took twenty years. Bill reached out a hand, slow and shaking, touched the tin star on Benny's lapel. You do it better, Benny. You do what's right. Even if some say it's wrong. How, how will I know, Bill? How will I know? You'll know, Benny. I did. I did in the end. Bill looked up at the sky above him. Beautiful out here sometimes, ain't it? I wonder what Sicily would have thought. I think she would have liked it. Bill stopped moving. Stopped breathing. But kept bleeding. Benny lowered his head. Well, Sheriff. Looks like you got some wrangling to do. Benny looked up. Quincy Gray stood above him, short legs quivering, yellow eyes twitching. Benny lowered Bill's head and shoulders carefully to the ground and stood. He looked to a pair of field hands stood nearby. You there. You done heard Mr. Bill Cuddy admit all crimes committed here over the past two weeks, didn't you? The burning and the murders. Saw him do the same here today. The field hands looked at Quincy, their employer, then at Benny, the law. Y yes. Yes. 
Sheriff. Benny looked back at Quincy. Looks like you got your man. Looks to me like you should be seeing to your remaining crops, sir. I'll make sure to let the town know. Get some down here to help you. Benny turned before looking back. Maybe you should think about burying your son. Benny walked back to Bill's body and with minimal effort, gently picked him up and walked down the path, the fire of the tobacco field still raging on either side. Behind him, Quincy Gray began shouting at his workers, ordering them to wells and giving orders to gather others. Not once did he look at the body of his son. Eighteen eighty nine Great State of Utah The Desk of Sheriff Benny Wilson To Mrs. Cicely Cuddy, my name is Benny Wilson, and up until late I had gratefully and happily served as deputy under the employ of your husband, William Cuddy. You will have to forgive my crude turns of phrase and lack of ten dollar words. This is the first time in my life where I have found myself in need of writing a letter, and even now I'm dictating my words to my wife, Kathy, to write down on the paper you now hold. It fills me with great sadness and melancholy to inform you of the death of your husband, William. No doubt word of his demise has reached you in New York. Unsurprisingly, the story of a sheriff committing murder burning of crops spread far and wide across the country. And while that version of events must remain to be believed in this part of the country, I would lose sleep every night for the rest of my life if I did not detail to at least one person in this world of the bravery and sacrifice my friend Bill Cuddy enacted on that day here in Saltwind. A man by the name of John Magner was accused of the crimes first at the behest and direction of Mr. Quincy Gray, a brutish and cruel man in these parts. In truth, crimes were all enacted by Mr. Gray himself, or by agents at his direction. He was awful sore about the progress and growth the Magners had displayed on land he owned, that he had much written off. To retrieve it, he concocted a series of events to remove Mr. Magna from this earth. Your husband could not and did not allow it to happen. As such, he took on the blame for himself and went so far as to commit further crimes to cement in the minds of our populace that he was in fact the criminal. As it stands, that view remains strong and firm in the minds of our townspeople. If his name is ever mentioned, it is only in terms most vulgar and cruel, and it takes every ounce of strength I have to not knock the teeth from the mouths of those who speak them. It is of the utmost importance to me to relay to you the vigors of strength and honor your husband held. While he did not speak of you often in the years we spent together, upon moving into the house he bought for you at his request, I found a trove of letters he had sent you from the past decade. Detailed amongst them was the great pain he felt over what part he played in the death of your brother. I imagine that his final act on this earth was penance for what he did to him and to you in the process. 
while it is not for me to say, I would tell you that in disgracing himself publicly and forever tarnishing his good name in the history books, he saved the lives of two hard-working, worthy people, and if that is not an act in of itself worthy of redemption, I don't know what is. The Magners are now in a location I will not disclose in this letter, as even my wife Kathy does not know it. I shall take it to my grave, as my promise to your husband goes along with it. But know that they are well, and last I heard expecting a child to bless their lives with. Mr. Quincy Gray lost a lot of money due to the fire bell caused, but largely was left unscarred by the events that took place here. However, some weeks back he was found lifeless in the morning. Doctor here says natural causes untook him in the night. I was told of rumors of folks seeing a man and a woman with fiery red hair on horseback riding across the fields behind the gray place that night, but I can attest that I myself was taking a midnight ride at the time in my capacity as sheriff and was in the same such area and saw nothing of the sort to support such claims. I will not bore you further with details of a town that you have never seen or will likely ever visit but I wish to inform you that your husband died the, in the exact opposite light in which he has been cast. And even if your ill feeling towards him has never subsided over the years, at least know that somewhere he was a force for good for many folk, myself included, even if he will only be remembered that way by those people and none other. I wish you nothing but happiness and love, good health, your remaining years on this earth. Me and my wife will take good care of your house in your husband's stead. If you ever get the itching to see the town your husband faithfully served for 20 years, our door will stand forever open for your arrival. With regards, Sheriff Benny Wilson. Justice, an elusive concept. So much of what is enshrined in law is contested fiercely and ferociously the world over. When one law exists in one land, it may not in another, it may take another form. As such, the morality, the rightness of a man's actions, 
especially in a community poisoned by so much wrong, invariably becomes the only source, only path forward, created and handed out by that man alone. Sheriff Bill Cutty died a man blighted, his name slighted, uttered only in harsh whispers and judgments. In the town of Saltwind he broke the laws, took life, but in his mind and in those closest to him, he made a sacrifice just and true, requiring the strength of multiple men. In the end, one cannot simply follow what he is told, cannot be led by scrawled lines on dusty paper. He must turn to his heart. Therein he may find what he is looking for, even if he'll forever be tainted in the eyes of others. And so the fire dies. We will return, as we always do. Be sure to visit the still-burning fire of episodes gone by on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and on the Work Stories Repeat website. Fire continually burns on social media in the digital fireplace that is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The teller looks forward to welcoming you to the fire again. Farewell.